From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today we'll talk live with our special guest, Congresswoman Nakima Williams. We'll ask about the crucial issues Congress is facing in the weeks ahead. I'm Tia Mitchell. Williams is also chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia. So we'll ask her about how Democrats in this state are gearing up for President Biden's re-election bid. I'm Greg Bluestein. Then we talk with state elections official Gabe Sterling, who has been a target of anger from far-right Republicans who still believe the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. And it's Friday, which means we'll answer your questions from our listener mailbag and give you our choices for who's up and who's down this week. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Tia, uh, we get to see each other, all of us, on Zoom. And I see that you are already wearing a winter coat, which I assume means you're preparing for your big trip to Iowa for the caucuses in about a week. (laughs) Or it means that the room at the Capitol where I record on occasion doesn't have heat in this room, so I'm bundled up. Greg, good to know that our nation's capital can't figure out how to make sure everybody has heat. It's troubling to me. (laughs) Look, I'm wearing a jacket and we're in Atlanta. I'm cold today in Atlanta. Um, All right, we've got a lot to talk about on the show today, so let's get right uh, to it. Um, Tia, I want to start with you because um, we're going to have a very special live guest with us this morning, someone who you cover regularly. Um, and that's uh, Congresswoman Nakima Williams, the Democratic Congresswoman of the 5th District, um, who uh, has a lot of credentials that we could uh, talk about, to you, including the fact that when uh, and she was first elected, she became president of the freshman uh, uh, class that she came in on. She's a member of, I think, just about every caucus <laughs> that is available to join up there, a very active member of the U.S. House, Tia. So we're really delighted to have Congresswoman Nakima Williams with us. And I'm going to let you start us off and say what you'd like about her, and then please ask the first question. Well, I can say a lot of, and I'm just joking, but no, Congresswoman (laughs) Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, y'all. It is still early, last day of my official time at home. So I know it's 10 o'clock, y'all, but we sleep in around here and (laughs) my hubby get Carter off to school and I was like, wait, what? 10 o'clock? That's early. But here I am because I'm always ready to talk about Georgia politics, especially the fighting fifth. That's right. So, and um, Representative Williams, we're going to talk a lot about not only your role in Congress, but your role as chair of the Democratic Party of Georgia. But before we get to that, just yesterday, you in your were in your district with um, leader Hakeem Jeffries, the leader of the Democratic Party, who, if all goes well for Democrats, could be the first black speaker of the U.S. House. Tell when me what you and go well, but. I'm going to let you finish. (laughs) I was going to say, tell us about what you guys were doing in Atlanta yesterday. So, Tia, as all of y'all know, Bill, Greg, Atlanta continues to be the center of the political universe. And yesterday was no different. I brought my friend, my homie. Y'all, he thinks that he is like the hip hop congressman, but Atlanta has news for him. But we brought the leader of the House Democratic Caucus, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, down from Brooklyn to visit Atlanta to show off everything that we're doing. And then to headline a big event for me last night Um, Over in Sherwood Forest, Mac Wilborn hosted him at his home. But we started the day going to a local barber shop because I 
we talk about the economy all the time and I, I read y'all's polls and I hear everything that y'all say because I'm a political junkie and we the economy is first and foremost on everyone's mind and we know that we have a history of building i'm wearing my my t-shirt today i got the heat turned up in here so it's not as cold as it is for you <laughs> but my shirt says black excellence lives here and this is a shirt that i got from the russell innovation center for entrepreneurs it's right at 504 fair street right off of Northside drive and anyone familiar with atlanta knows the story of herman russell and he's a self-made black millionaire and now the russell center is creating more herman russells and i was able to take leader jeffries over to this incubator space for black businesses black entrepreneurship and to show off black businesses in the district and then we stopped over at Bobby's Barbershop on MLK. And it's the barbershop where Mr. Lewis, Congressman Lewis used to get his hair cut. And so that was a special moment because I even learned something. I knew that Mr. Lewis went there for many, many years, but Mr. Lewis started getting his hair cut there because when Mr. Bobby was really young, Martin Luther King Jr. and a young John Lewis came in and Martin Luther King Jr. got his shoes shined at the barbershop. And he needed a, and Congressman Lewis needed a haircut and Mr. Bobby started cutting his hair hmm. and he cut his hair until his death. And so we stopped in and talked with black men hanging out at the barbershop. And let me tell you, they have some thoughts, especially on the economy. Well, and it was good to have Leader Jeffries hear those conversations from the people on the ground, what's at the top of folks' minds and what we're doing about it in Congress. Well, Congresswoman, that's, I really want to ask you about that because, you know, elected officials like journalists, when they want to get a sense of what the real people out there are thinking, barbershops are one of the places we often go. So what were oh, they, they telling you? they let you hear it all, Bill. They and, let you hear it all. And what were they telling you about the economy yesterday? So people are still feeling it and they want to know what, what is happening and they understand that there's a lot of work happening, but how does that translate into their bottom line, into their budget, into their wallets, their pocketbooks? And so we heard from people directly. We heard from business owners about what they're experiencing right now. And black businesses are continuing to thrive, especially under the work that the Biden-Harris administration has done. We have work to do to make sure that that gets out across the masses, but we're doing the work, Bill, and I'm going to continue to wake up on my last day at home early in the morning. <laughs> I know 10 ain't early, y'all, but <laughs> to talk about it because that's important. We're here with Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who's also the chairwoman of the Democratic Party of Georgia. And my next question follows up on Bill's. In the run-up to 2020, you said every single chance you got that Georgia was a battleground state. We're sitting here now three years to the day when John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock beat Republican incumbents to flip the Senate. So you no longer need to convince anyone that Georgia is a battleground. But are you now concerned after hearing from voters, you've been hearing from voters throughout the last years, that you're concerned that there's an enthusiasm gap. You know, a lot of polls, there's been a narrative out there. We've certainly heard from voters who say that they are concerned, you know, parts of, the, of Joe Biden's coalition who've said that they're concerned about whether or not they're going to vote for him um, in, in November. Do you sense that sort of enthusiasm gap on the ground? There's a long time between now and Election Day, Greg, and you know that polls will go up and down, round and round, and they will change. We have work to do. Everybody has to continue to do their job, and that's what we're doing. We're telling the story. We're making it real for people so that they get the connection between what is happening in Washington, what the Biden-Harris administration is doing, and how it is impacting their everyday lives. And until people understand that what they're feeling, what they are reaping the benefits of, is coming directly from the leadership of the Biden-Harris administration and House Democrats, then we haven't completed our job. So I'm glad that I have more time because I have a story to tell. Tia? So, Rep. Williams, I want to bring it back here to Washington. I know you're due back here on Tuesday. Um, the House has a lot on its plate for January. It's looking to be a busy January. Um, what's the road ahead? The Republicans, and I know you're a Democrat, but Republicans, their majority is much thinner, and they've really struggled to pass difficult legislation. There's a government shutdown coming up. 
um, money for Israel in Ukraine, border security. What do you think this month is going to bring? And do you think this these heavy issues can get accomplished? I mean, I think you said it best that um, this is on the Republican leadership. But Tia, Speaker Johnson and the Republicans in Congress, they have irresponsibly pushed all of this must-pass legislation into January and February because they don't have a plan. It's as simple as that. We started off the year like this on January 3rd when they couldn't even govern themselves to elect a speaker. And y'all, Kevin McCarthy is not even a member of Congress anymore. He resigned officially at the end of last year, just last week. So Republicans don't have a plan. They've created two separate funding deadlines for different government agencies. Y'all, it is reckless. And it increases the likelihood of a government shutdown. But that is of little concern to them. But what I need people to know, and I need any Republican who is listening, I represent real people, real people in Congress, not percentages, not numbers. And we've got work to do because I am doing everything I can to lead on behalf of the people and to continue to put people over politics. And I wish I could say the same for my Republican colleagues, but they just don't have a plan and it does not seem that they care. And I want to ask you specifically when it comes to the foreign aid for Israel and Ukraine, because you're considered a progressive Democrat. You've uh, it, uh, expressed some concerns. Where do you stand on whether Israel and Ukraine, separate two separate questions, should they get more money from the United States? Well, I don't think it should be two separate questions because when we are voting on funding for foreign aid, we vote in packages. So it is, again, irresponsible for my Republican colleagues and leadership to separate these two separate issues out. This has not happened before. So now we're putting contingencies. What we saw was when we were stepping up and looking to send funding to Israel it was the Republican Party who put conditions on this, saying that, well, unless we unless we fall in line with their border plan, which does nothing to solve the crisis at the southern border, unless we fall in line with that, then they wouldn't even deal with the funding crisis um, for our our allies abroad. So it's just another part of their reckless agenda. And until they can come together and understand that we need to lead on behalf of this entire country and not just their do-nothing Republican plan, we've got a problem. If I but may, I've got a solution too, Tia. we got elections coming up. <laughs> if I may, let me sort of uh, put together uh, the question Greg asked you with what Tia just asked you about. Um, one of the issues, obviously, as you've just talked about in terms of getting a funding package for Ukraine and Israel, Republicans are insisting on border security measures that be stepped up that Democrats consider draconian in many ways. But President Biden is so eager to try to get uh, aid to Israel and Ukraine that he seems to be willing to make some compromises with Republican demands on the border. And that has created some issues for him among some Democrats. And I think maybe part of what Greg talks about when he says there he senses a, an enthusiasm gap for President Biden. How is President Biden going to thread this needle in a way that satisfies Democrats that he is not overreacting on border security, um, but in fact uh, is also looking for a way to get aid to Ukraine and Israel? Well, first of all, Bill, we're not going to own the Republicans' problem. The Republicans are in control of Congress right now on the House, and they need to step up with a plan and a proposal, which they have not presented a plan that can even pass their caucus at this point. And so until they do that, then we're going to continue to make sure that we're looking at the humanity in every situation <clears throat> and we are looking at the real problems that we're facing. And yes, our immigration system is broken. No one will dispute that. But we need a real plan in place by the leadership of the Republican Party that they can actually get through their caucus, because right now they don't even have that. Congressman Williams is not just Republicans, of course, who are demanding 
uh, more security and more changes at the U.S. border with Mexico. But Democrats are, too, and, and President Biden's administration is under pressure from both sides uh, of the aisle to, to make some changes. So where, where do you stand on this? Where, where, what, what is sort of the Democratic uh, solution to this crisis? Well, Greg, yeah, I named that before you asked your question mm-hmm. that, yes, our immigration system is broken and we must do something about this. Like, I am always going to center those most marginalized. That is no different in any other decision that I make here in Congress. But we have to look at the humanity in the situation. And right now, any plan that I am going to vote on as the voice of the people of the 5th District will center the humanity of everyone involved. We have to make sure that people have a path to citizenship, including those people that are already here. I see it every day. I've worked with people here in my office who are dreamers. We still need a plan for people living in this country in addition to people trying to get into the country. And I I am not going to dispute that our immigration system is broken, but the Republicans who are leading right now are supposedly leading don't have a plan in place. I did want to ask you, Representative Williams, looking forward to 2024, what is the plan? I was just watching some analysis on CNN this morning, and they're talking about all these polls show that Biden is going to have a difficult time carrying Georgia again in 2024. What do you say to that? I mean, Tia, people told us the same thing in 2020, and we have always been counted out. We've always been thought of as the underdogs, and people laughed at me when I became the state party chair, and I saw a path to victory. And so we're going to continue to do the work. Yes, we have to make sure that we are connecting the dots for voters, and that's what we're doing. We have to stay out there. We have to connect with people on the ground, and we have to continue to have the conversation. Direct voter contact and how we are actually making change in people's lives lives is the way to victory on for any party. The Republican Party understands that. And we absolutely understand that as Democrats in this state. But we've got to do the work. We've got to continue to organize. There's no secret sauce to winning elections. It all comes down to organizing, engaging year round with voters about the issues that matter to them and then turning those voters out. And that's exactly what we did in 2020, in 2021, in 2022. And we're going to continue to do it this cycle in 2024. How do you address the uh, uh, elephant in the room, if I could use that expression, which does lead many people, including Democrats, some Democrats, to be concerned about the presidential election, and that is President Biden's age. Um, he, it, it, we're not talking now, I don't think, about mental uh, f- faculties. I mean, clearly he is still really uh, uh, capable of making big decisions. He has. There are many people who would say he's had a great administration in a lot of ways. But to watch him physically, we do see someone who slowed down, who walks more carefully, who talks more softly. And, and it, it, it may seem trivial to talk about that, but I think that's something people look at and, sh- and have concerns about. How do you deal with that? So it, it's not something to shy away from on the elephant in the room. We have to discuss it. President Biden is... Um, He's a senior president. He's he's old, y'all. But guess what? Donald Trump is old, too. Why we ain't talking about that? Y'all, Donald Trump is the old man and he ain't fast. Have you seen him out there on the stomp on the campaign trail? And he can't even string a sentence along together. So, y'all, we have two very old men running as the head of their respective parties. So elections are about a contrast and we will paint the contrast. But with both of them being old, then what's the next thing? Who is going to lead our country best? And that is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris all day, every day. And that's (laughs) what we're going to do when we go out on the campaign trail, continue to paint the contrast because they're both old. (laughs) <laughs> We're here with Congresswoman Nakima Williams, who is not only the head of the Democratic Party of Georgia, but also represents the 5th District. Now, I want to ask you about that, because, Congresswoman, uh, there was just a, another round of redistricting, your district, the 5th. Another one, Greg. Another one. We've covered uh, two in two years now. Um, your district wasn't as heavily redrawn as some others, uh, like Lucy McBath's up in the uh, the former 7th, uh, but it was still significantly overhauled. So you're not happy with it. Um, a number of Democrats are not also, of course, not happy with it. But what's next for Democrats who want to fight these new district boundaries? 
So the legal gurus are still looking at um, what can be done through an appeals process. And Greg, we're gearing up to make sure that we continue to represent the people of this state who need voices of true leaders in Congress. Because right now, the Republican Party is not leading in the majority. So we've got work to do to get out there and meet our new voters to make sure that we are painting again that contrast bill because we have a contrast to paint between democrats and republicans my district um would lose a significant part of the political black power that we've come to know in atlanta the west side of atlanta adamsville collier heights the mayor of atlanta was drawn out of the fifth congressional district imagine that the mayor of atlanta so we will continue to do that work and continue to make sure that black political leadership is strong in Atlanta and across the state and country. Tia, you want to so, jump in? Yeah, just quickly. Um, what do you think is the solution? I, you were just talking about the mayor being drawn out of the district and um, the it kind of came down to whether Gwinnett, this minority district but not a black district should be protected and the judge basically said the law doesn't allow us to account for latinos and asians what do you think is the solution there well let me correct you on that tia because my district that i currently represent the fifth district was not a majority black district and people have a misconception people think that the fifth congressional district was majority black but my district was an opportunity district for black voters to come together and elect a wonderful black woman as their representative. <laughs> and I would tell people all the time, you don't have to pack voters into my district in order for me to be successful in the work that I do. Because turns out, Bill, Greg, I can talk to white people too. <laughs> not doing the work. And that's what I'm in Congress to do. Whether you are black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whatever, I am here to do the work and can talk to everyone. But so what the Republicans did was they turned my district, which was about 48, 49% black into 51% black and said, oh, here you go. We created you a new black district. Well, guess what? That in the spirit of what the judge said, does not meet the mark, but in the legal legalities of it met the mark. And so what the judge had to do was rule on in black and white what he initially gave us put before the legislature. And yeah, the Republicans know they were slick with it. And they came up with this plan to say that the fifth district is now this new black district. But we all know that black excellence has always lived in Atlanta. And we've always come together to build this coalition with white voters, black voters and progressive voters who want real leadership to represent them. And we've had a black representative for many, many decades in Congressman John Lewis. And I was just with Ambassador Young last night who ably led the district before, even before Congressman Lewis. So this, this whole notion that the Republicans did us a favor and created this new black district, y'all, it's, it's the okie doke and we need to pay attention. <laughs> um, we're almost out of time, uh, Congresswoman. But before we go, I, I think there's one thing we really do have to address. Um, you were very gracious to accept Tia's invitation to do the show today. And it was coincidence, but this is the day. <laughs> before the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Tia was in the Capitol that day. Uh, you were in the Capitol that day. Um, three years later, uh, there are MAGA Republicans who continue to say the 2020 election was fraudulent. They continue to say, oh, that wasn't a riot. That was people expressing their uh, uh, First Amendment rights to object to uh, the way in which the election turned out. What are your reflections three years later on what happened that day and how it continues to resonate among so many Republicans? Bill, it is, it's, it's a sad time to be in the United States Congress when we have people literally serving who do not respect our democracy, who are willing to turn over the will of the people a free and fair election and the peaceful transfer of power. You're right, I was in the Capitol that day. Y'all, I was so new that I even still had to be escorted to the floor because I didn't know how to get to the floor. <laughs> and sitting in my office, I we were still in this age of COVID. And we were told that 
we needed to stay in our office until it was our turn. Arizona was still being debated. I had practice y'all like an Easter speech ready to go on the floor and make my first debut as a member of Congress to defend the electoral college votes of Georgians. I was one of our electors in Georgia and getting ready to go down. My first order on the floor was going to be defending voting rights in the seat that I just came oh. into um, that was so ably led by Congressman John Lewis. And I never got that moment, y'all, because then I was told to take cover. I was told to go to the safe room, which I didn't even know where the safe room was. I had local reporters calling me from Atlanta asking where I was. And I was like, well, I can't tell y'all. They might find me. I could hear the chaos outside and to hear people who on the other side were visibly shaken and scared that day to now dismiss what happened. It's appalling and it's an insult to the body of Congress and they're not worthy of the office that they serve in. If you cannot at the bare minimum stand up for our democracy, why are you in this role? That is the bare minimum, standing up for our democracy and the peaceful transfer of power. We've got work to do on both sides of the aisle. And while I will not be voting in any Republican primaries, Republican voters need to have a deep look at the people that they are elected to represent them because they need to reflect on what party and who they are serving in their party. Congressman Nakima Williams, thank you for um, those final thoughts, especially on this as we approach the third anniversary of the insurrection. But thank you very much for spending so much time with us on Politically Georgia Today. Um, we will watch you in the weeks and months ahead, both on the Hill and in your role with the Democratic Party as you work for uh, Joe Biden's uh, re-election by the people of Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from all of the political reporters at the AJC. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. And um, now we're going to turn to another um, uh, special guest live uh, on the show today, Gabe Sterling. Gabe is officially the uh, COO of the Secretary of State's office, but as so many people know, especially during 2020, when Donald Trump was aggressively, along with many of his allies, fighting to overturn the results of the Georgia election, uh, Gabe Sterling became, in many ways, the face and spokesperson for the Secretary of State's office. Gabe, we're really glad you're with us. And I want to say something kind of interesting. When 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 I was thinking about uh, introducing you today, I went back and I looked at the quote that you gave back in 2020 um, that really, I think, still today is is meaningful. And then I went and read Patricia Murphy's column, and she led with the same quote. You stood on the steps of the state capitol, and you said, someone's going to get hurt, someone's going to get shot, someone's going to get killed, referring to the turmoil that Donald Trump and his allies had created around the so-called fake election in Georgia. And Gabe Sterling, just this week, you were a victim of a swatting incident, which could have led to somebody being uh, hurt. But thank you for being here. T talk about that. Well, technically, the somebody who could have been hurt was me or my wife. So yeah. I'm still pretty pissed. Um, but at the same time, the people who were doing this, and we got to realize this has now happened to I don't know how many state senators and other elected officials in this state and some congress congressmen in other states, others. Um, a, a Democrat uh, a state senator, Burt Jones, MTG, supposedly nine times. And look, Marjorie Taylor Greene and I, she doesn't like me very much, but we've been victims of the same thing as wrong when it's done to anybody. So there are going to be chaos agents 
and this, you know, the other thing that happened the same day that my home was swatted was there were 23 states that received bomb threats for their state capitals. We're going to see some of this and people need to be prepared for it and not jump to the conclusion that it's obviously somebody that I hate. If you're like a, a Trump person, think, well, that was obviously Antifa trying to make it look this way. Or if you're, you know, a, a progressive person, that's obviously Donald Trump supporters. We don't know. And don't let this harden your heart and make you angrier at them because you just don't know until we have the actual evidence. So that's my basic message on this. Is we're going to have chaos agents. It's going to be bad. We don't know who to blame for certain on these specific things. But the rhetoric around these things still comes from the, the Donald Trump side of the of the aisle on that. So we, we do understand where that's it's allowing some of this to happen. Gabe, it's Greg Bluestein. Uh, you had tweeted about chaos agents earlier that day, a few hours before you were you were swatted with these hoax nine one one calls um, because the capital, the Georgia capital, was was evacuated because of one of these hoax emails. Um, I know in your case that this sort of this sort of swatting, this sort of incident, is not going to stop you from speaking out. But do you worry that these nine one one, these hoax nine one one calls, these targeted attacks on on officials like you, do you, you worry that it will it will make others less inclined to speak out as you're doing right now? Maybe, but I, I, if you run for office, you have to have some ability to manage these kind of risks in your mind because mm-hmm. you're putting yourself out there to be a leader and leaders shouldn't be cowed by these things. I mean, I was very disheartened to read the reports from uh, the Washington Post and in the, in the Mitt Romney book about senators who thought about voting to convict the, the former president who didn't because of potential violence to their families. That's not how any of this is supposed to work. Um, and that's terrible. And I'm not saying they should or shouldn't have, but they shouldn't have had the violence be in or the potential violence in their mind as they're making those decisions. And that's what the chaos agents want. They want us to hate each other just a little bit more. They want to drive a wedge into our system just a little bit more. They want to cause questioning and doubt in the outcomes of these elections because that seeds to what they want. Now, one of the things that people forget during the 2020 aftermath, there was this big website that was put up called Enemies of the People. And it had a picture of the there's like 45 people on there, picture of the person, picture of their house, address, phone number, email. And they had Governor Whitmer was the first one. Number two was me. Hmm. And I was like, why the hell am I number two? And they, like, but Raffensperger was on there. Some Dominion employees was on there. Governor Kemp was on there. And the FBI got involved and took it down in about a day or so. So I got a call a month later. I'm sitting in a Mexican restaurant and it's the FBI. I'm like, a better answer. And they say, hey, we got great news. I'm like, what's that? That enemies the people side? It's like, yeah, it was the Iranians. I'm like, why is that great news? Uh, so they basically said, because it's, it's, it's not homegrown. I'm like, so there are foreign powers who are doing this stuff to drive a wedge, too. So it is just as likely it's a foreign power doing a lot of these things. Hmm. Or it's just as likely it's a domestic uh, terrorist doing it. We just don't know. But we can't let it change how we react and what we do. We have to be prepared for any potential threats. But we should do what the right thing is in any circumstances, regardless of these kind of threats. So, Mr. Sterling, thank you, number one, for joining us. But you talk about these threats, these um, agents of chaos. What are you doing or what can be done to try to address that going into another huge consequential election year to help people have more confidence in the outcome of the election? The media has to be responsible in reporting the incidents on all sides, which, you know, there's responsible media and there's irresponsible media. The problem is these kind of things are sexy. They get clicks. So there is an incentive to hype them up to a degree and talk about the potential for violence. And the the real world stuff that the secretary is doing is he is uh, having us do four different convenings, local law enforcement, local elections directors, about how to deal with threats for polling locations and elections workers and those kind of things throughout the state of Georgia in the coming months. And we've been working on those for a couple of months now. We have coordinated with the FBI on these on these incidents and the GBI and GEMA. We have good stuff on the ground to deal with things as they happen. What we can't do very much about other than continue to say we will have a free and fair election and be transparent is people's minds and how they perceive these things. And the worst part is, uh, for good or for ill, a problem in one state cascades to every other state. They have, to, they have to then defend that state or explain that state. And one of the things that we've run into is, as elections administrators is there's this gut reaction of, 
I know we do it really well in Georgia, but I don't know about those guys over in Arizona or Pennsylvania. But they do know about those guys in Arizona and Pennsylvania, because in every state in the country, there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of elections workers who are just as dedicated and just like your neighbors that go to church with you and go to the grocery store, who they have a voter registration file. They identify their voters. They reconcile their votes. They tabulate their votes. Ninety five percent are on paper. I mean, they check signatures or check the idea on mail in voting. These processes are slightly different in every state, but they all do the same the election integrity is done. Almost every state now has a post-election audit. Gabe, um, uh, let me jump in if I may, um, because uh, you are well aware of the fact that there are Republicans in the legislature who may be looking at new election measures, including do we even want to continue with the Dominion voting machines? Should people be allowed to vote on paper ballots and other uh, issues like that? Um, You know, Friday is the day that we take uh, 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 questions from listeners uh, who uh, want to talk to us about the things that are of concern to them. And although we'll do the most of that later in the show, Scott in Marietta actually asked a question that we'd like you to answer for us. Let's listen to what he says related to uh, uh, the election machinery, how votes are counted, and the like. As a poll worker, I understand that we have paper ballots. The ballot marking device, the screen that people choose their selections, is what marks their paper ballot. Then they take that paper ballot and they run it through the scanner, and that is when they actually cast their vote. I'd love to hear some discussion on that and possibly somebody from the elections office come in and explain that. Well, Gabe, you're that person from the election (laughs) office. Um, It isn't really a paper. It isn't really voting on paper but do you believe he's right you're just 100 percent wrong it is 100 percent voting on paper i mean (laughs) that's the reality what scott just said you're making your choice think of the ballot marking device as a really big expensive pin (laughs) and the reason we do it that way is we we avoid undervotes we avoid overvotes and those are the real big problems with hand marked paper ballots and also ballot marking devices are much more secure than hand marked paper ballots because there's log files it is difficult to change things on them. You can see what is done by pulling those log files and looking at them. If there's ever a place where you could have potential voter fraud, it's on hand-marked paper ballots um, because it's very easy to go in and, o- and overvote it. You can do a stray mark in an extra oval at a presidential race, and that race, that ballot is then counted as zero. Mm-hmm. It is an overvote. It does not count. It is much less secure on hand-marked paper. And one of the really hysterical things about this after three years of dealing with this, they're all focused on the Dominion machines, the people who claim that these happened. He, the pres- former president, won big time on the actual in-person voting, which was all done on the Dominion voting machines. He lost on the hand-marked paper absentee ballots. <laughs> and now they're saying, we want to go to a more secu- secure system. And they really don't want just hand-marked paper ballots. They want hand-marked, hand-counted, which is utterly and totally implausible in a state of our size. We have over 18,000 ballot styles for a general election, and there's 36,000 ballot styles for a primary election. Trying to run early voting that way is impossible to do just about in any real way. With a county like Fulton, if they walked into a vote center there, which is an early voting location, they would have a thousand different kinds of ballots they would have to, to pull for these voters. Greg? We would be disenfranchising voters. I, I can go on this for about three or four hours before you give me that much <laughs> yeah. time Yeah, Greg, jump in. Well, Gabe, we're here with Gabe Sterling, a, not only a state elections official, but a top deputy to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. And, and Gabe, on that note, I mean, it seems like there was a detente of sorts last year over election-related legislation. The next legislative session begins on Monday, and there is going to be a number of proposals floated about election law. Is there anything that you and your boss do think should be changed about Georgia's current election system and its processes? I think in general right now we have very good systems in place. The one thing I don't want to do for our election administrators is we want to do no harm. We don't want to make changes as we're walking into a presidential election year. They have had these machines now through two cycles. They've changed the entire way that we handled a lot of the stuff in the 2022 cycle if the legislature makes change, big time changes now, coming into March into April, we will have just had the presidential preference primary. We'll be about to go into the um, uh, the primary, I mean, the, the, gen- the primary in May, mm-hmm. and then the runoff, and then we go into the general election. The one thing we have asked for specifically is 
we need more bodies <laughs> because our system is complex. We have 159 counties. We have never really fully funded elections in this state. We have 22 employees in the elections division in the state of Georgia. South Carolina, with half our population, has, I think, something like 64. Um, North Carolina, which is about equal population, has about 72. We have 22. And we, we are asked to do all these things between open records requests and you know, data management. And we do a lot more in other states. We own all the equipment. We build all the ballots. We, we help the counties in so many ways. We need to be fully funded so we can keep a very secure election and do all the things the state senators and state legislators want us to do. Because at the end of the day, all we're doing is implementing the laws that they pass. Gabe Sterling, we're out of time, but we are going to watch to see about the kind of funding you get uh, from this legislative session to add the uh, personnel that you believe is important. We are going to have to get to a break, but, but Gabe Sterling, we're very glad you could join us today. We hope we'll be able to talk to you as the election cycle continues down the road. And uh, we're always glad to have you on Politically Georgia. Thanks so much, Gabe. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. You'll get all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more at AJC.com. And you'll also have access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. So you always will know what's really going on. It's time for one of our favorite uh, final segments of Politically Georgia all week. And that's a chance that we get to hear your questions in the listener mailbag and then get to tell you who we think is up and down for the week. I should start by saying that we love hearing from you. If you have questions for us, you can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime, day or night, and we will play back your uh, questions of, of, for you. Um, the number is uh, 404-526-2527. So, uh, Shaney B., why don't we start with a couple of uh, questions from listeners? Let's do it. And uh, before we start, I just want to wish all of you and all of our listeners Happy New Year, Happy 2024. And let's get to it. We got some great calls. We're going to narrow it down here. Let's start off with a question from uh, Steve in Atlanta. He has a question about school vouchers here in Georgia. Is there not a clause in the Georgia Constitution that prohibits public money from being funneled to religious institutions? And would this not render any school voucher proposal unconstitutional? Steve, great question. This is about the school voucher expansion that uh, failed in the Georgia General Assembly last year uh, with the revolt of 16 House Republicans, but it's going to be back this coming year. And it's an interesting legal question because there's two parts of it. First, the Georgia Constitution says that an adequate public education for the citizens shall be a primary obligation of the state of Georgia. So you could read into that. There could be a debate that using public dollars to finance private schools skirts that obligation for an adequate public education. Um, but you can kind of see the other, the other side would say it does not. Um, there's also the federal concerns. That a that these school voucher programs violates the separation of church and state because they end up funneling some private funding into uh, religious schools. But the Supreme Court has held that spending voucher money at private sectarian schools doesn't violate that separation of church and state law. So it's a long way of saying that has been hashed out in the courts, but it doesn't mean it wouldn't be hashed out in the courts well, again. Well, real quickly, I have a really surprising uh, answer to that. I, when I was at Channel 2 News, discovered there was a statute passed in Georgia, I think it was in the early 60s, maybe late 50s, which in fact authorized 
public funds for private schools. It was never funded, however, and so nothing ever happened with it. But to the best of my knowledge, it's never been taken off the books. I should now go back and look at that again. And there's a program called the School Scholarships Organizations that helps use tax refunds, tax rebates to fund private schools in Georgia. So there's there's other programs out there already. Shani B., what else you got for us? Next up is a call from Keith in Richmond Hill. Hey, good morning. Who are the leading candidates for governor on the Democratic side? Is it Jason Carter, Jim Jordan, William Body, or is it someone outside of politics? But who is the uh, top contenders at this point? Well, Greg and Tia, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'll let Greg start. He's the expert on that. Well, I, I think the answer was, uh, you mentioned Jason Carter, the former 2014 gubernatorial um, nominee who is still out there and still hasn't ruled out a run. Um, Lucy McBath is someone we're very closely watching. Um, as we mentioned earlier in the program, she has now been drawn out of her district twice, and she's running in a new district. And there's a silver lining in that for her as well, because it means that if she wins re-election in 2014, she's represented a huge portion, probably more than a million voters, uh, millions maybe, in Metro Atlanta um, the most important Democratic stronghold in Georgia. Savannah Mayor Van Johnson, some of are watching. Uh, Michael Thurmond, a friend of the show who's been on here a number of times, who's now the DeKalb County CEO, so the chief executive of the most important Democratic county in, in the deepest blue Democratic county in Georgia. And then remember, Stacey Abrams could still launch a third, but she hasn't ruled that out yet at all. Well, Tia, that, what, that, the reason I would love to hear you is because Greg already mentioned Lucy McBath. She'll run, of course, in the new district for another two years in Congress. But while you're up there watching her, on the Hill, uh, you also might start getting some clues as to whether, in fact, she does have a gubernatorial race in the back of her mind. Yeah, I don't I I think Lucy McBath is one of those people that it's not necessarily on her bingo card for her life to run for governor. But if enough people convince her that she can do some good and that she's viable, she might consider it. But I think we don't I think. I think there are names we aren't talking about yet mm-hmm. that in a year or two we will. Absolutely. It's, we got a long way to go. Yeah, it's really different from the run-up to the 2022 election because we knew from basically the day that Stacey Abrams lost to Governor Kemp that she would run another election. Yeah. And she froze the field. There was really no other Democratic name that really surfaced. There's a few Plan Bs, but everyone who knew Stacey Abrams knew she was running for another for, – for, she was going to make a comeback. She was going to run again. Yeah. In this case, we don't know. So Tia's right. Uh, Republicans are more likely to pick an outsider candidate than Democrats, but Democrats certainly have gone outside the realm of normal politics too. All right. Thank you uh, for those uh, questions from our listeners, and thank you for uh, sending us questions so we have – some ability, at least, to actually answer. Uh, I really appreciate it hearing Greg and Tia. We had a lot of questions this week, too. Yeah, There's a, a lot, lot of them, and unfortunately, we don't have time uh, for all of them. But keep sending them to us. All right, it's time for that segment we uh, love, and that's who's up and who's down this week. Tia, who's your person who is down this week? Well, my who's down is people, and it's any people <laughs> who do... Um, who have embraced the conspiracy theories and the misinformation about January 6th. It was a bad and, and dark day, and it was caused by supporters of Donald Trump. I was there, I can tell you. And um, so if you believe the conspiracies, you're down bad. Greg, right, who's down in yeah, your book? Yeah, my down is the vandals who target Emanuel's oh. Tavern, the, the beloved Atlanta institution that has placed host, host to so many political figures and events over the years. Authorities say they suspect the opponents of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center spray-painted the walls. We don't know who did it, but we know whoever did it um, targeted a beloved institution. And Brian Maloof, the bar's owner, told me that it feels like something has just changed with the discourse for the worse. Yeah, they, they did this with Mayor Dickens scheduled to make an appearance there. They put super glue in the lock so that Brian had to break into his, his own, own establishment. And what I want to hear is I was going to pick them, too. I've got another choice now. I want to hear those who are peacefully protesting um, condemn this kind of vandalism, which has no place in protesting um, legitimately a facility that some people don't want. All right. So since you picked that, uh, 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 Greg, I'm going to pick the Pepsi-Cola company. Pepsi-Cola is being banned, and all of its products are being banned from some of the largest 
grocery stores in Europe because their prices have gotten so high that supermarket retailers are saying, I don't want you in the store until you do something about your prices. And of course, I mention them because that's nothing but good news for the Coca-Cola company. For someone who's never knowingly <laughs> drinking a Pepsi product in my adult life, I'm okay I with understand. that. All right, Greg. Y'all know I'm Team Pepsi. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> team we know. Pepsi. Just don't try to buy one in, uh, in France. Uh, to you. <laughs> Greg, who's up? Uh, my who's up for the week is supporters of Medicaid expansion. I don't say this lightly. Because this has this this debate has bubbled up over the years, but for the first time in more than a decade, Republican leaders are signaling a genuine opening to expanding Medicaid. Some forty other states, including many deep red ones, have already done so, and advocates are hopeful this is this is the year, and it could be. We'll see. Uh, Tia, you you're up for the week. I'll just say, since we're starting out the new year, my who's up is our AJC colleagues. We do great work. Um, our colleagues, Mark and Maya, are getting ready for the legislative session. But all of our AJC colleagues who, back to 2024, we're back on our grind, bringing you all the news, all the updates. Oh, that's terrific. And that's all. You're going to be down there, Greg Bluestein, starting on Monday. We know that. My up for this week, and it's sort of a halfway up for a reason I'll explain, is Harriet Tubman. There has been a fight going on for years about putting Harriet Tubman's image on the $20 bill. It's been fought and fought, and it hasn't moved forward. But President Biden just signed a measure which will now put Harriet Tubman, the great abolitionist, uh, the escaped slave who was very deeply involved in recruiting black soldiers to fight for the Union Army, who uh, helped with the Underground Railroad. She is now going to have her image on gold coins, on silver coins, on 50. I think the, the largest ones are um, uh, $5 gold coins, dollar, $1 silver coins, 50 cent pieces. They're commemorative. They will not be in general circulation, and that's why this is only a halfway up. It would be great to see her on that $20 bill, but it's wonderful that she is there right now. Uh, That's it. We're out of time for today's Politically Georgia. We're going to head into a weekend, but back Monday, you can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta, or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app, and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again on Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.